this holy one, this one on his throne, this one who is the lamb who will receive glory, he is the king. And this is the time of year in which we all sing, let earth receive her king. Let earth receive her king. Listen to the heart of this ruler, this king, this sovereign. Listen to what he says. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting, note that, an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. In other words, the people of Israel. We shouldn't miss that fact. This invitation, this promise, is to people who had persistently rebelled. In fact, if there's any word that describes the responses of the people of Israel through history, it was a persistent, repeated failure and rebellion. And yet their holy God says, come. No money, no problem. Come. They no less resistant and stubborn than you and me. And what I want us to see this morning is this is history. I mean, what we've read, what we sing about just now, what we're suggesting is this is what history is about. It's the Creator rescuing and redeeming and restoring unworthy people, just like you and me, like Israel under the Old Covenant, and the failing people of what's called the Church of Jesus all throughout history, What history is about is the Creator reaches out and takes unworthy people and draws them to Himself, and here's the mystery, desires to be with us. That's what history is about. And so what started in Eden will culminate in the New Jerusalem, as we'll see in our text this morning. In the same way that God possessed a people that He wanted to dwell with and be in communion with, and a people that would worship Him, in the same way that that was His intention at creation, and all of that was complicated and ruined and tainted with sin and rebellion, in the New Jerusalem, He finally achieves in fullness what He intended from the beginning. So Eden, although in a greater and more glorious way, Eden becomes a city, the new Jerusalem, that will last forever. And that's what we read when we come to the Word of God in Revelation chapter 21. Would you turn there with me? We are in the book of Revelation, and we will utilize these ending visions to God's revelation, the general revelation, I should say the the broad revelation of the Bible itself, and the specific book of Revelation, we will culminate our studies throughout the Advent season because earth is to receive her king. This is what it will look like someday, finally. It is so imperfect now, even though we sing the carols, even though we celebrate the birth of the king, he still is in so many ways rejected, in so many ways It would appear at least that he's marginalized, but there will finally come a time when earth, a renovated, restored, renewed earth, will receive her king in fullness. And that's what we'll see this morning and over the course of the next few weeks. And it begins here in chapter 21 with verse 1. So if you'd look there, and I always remind you, I'll do it again today, this is God's word for us today. So in Revelation 21 and verse 1, John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth, that first earth we're living in right now, it had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is literally the promise 
of a literal heaven on earth. We've all heard that phrase. But heaven on earth, search for it all you will, you can't find it. But one day it will come about. Heaven will come to earth. Now, we use the word heaven, indeed the Bible uses the term heaven, in various ways, like very many of the words and language of the Bible. Heaven is sometimes used for just the sky. You look up into the sky, the heavens, the birds fly in heaven. You also, it's used for what you and I would call outer space, the heavens. So we see the stars and they are in the heaven and the Bible speaks of heaven in that way. And there's also this mysterious way, the Bible talks about heaven as the spiritual abode of God, who is spirit, by the way. And we believe that indeed the souls, the spirits of our loved ones who have died in Christ, who died forgiven, they are with God now in heaven, but it is a spiritual location without any material manifestation, I should add, except for the body of the Lord Jesus who is there. But we can't say much about this, what is sometimes called the third heaven. We can't say much about the abode of God other than our, the limited information we have in Scripture. But then there is this sense in which heaven now comes to earth. So what we're understanding, what I should emphasize, is that right now our loved ones, they are not walking on streets of gold. And they never have wings. They don't have wings now, and they're never going to. I should just clarify that. They're not angels. And in fact, right now, they don't live in mansions. Our understanding of what their existence is right now is limited to a degree, but it is a spiritual existence while they await their resurrected bodies. And when they receive their resurrected bodies at the return of Jesus, and then as we enter into the interim kingdom where Jesus rules and reigns on earth for a thousand years, they live with us In those resurrected bodies, we will also have resurrected bodies. We believe there will be humans, mortals still on earth, that will need to come to faith in Jesus. And then at the end of the thousand years, this old earth is done away with, and God brings about the new earth, where he, remember we saw it the last couple of weeks, he makes all things new. And so when that happens, we will experience a new heaven And that new heaven, according to Revelation 21, is in the proximity of the new earth. So it's not out there in outer space somewhere. It's it's not wherever, and because it's a spiritual realm, we can't even say much about this. It's not where the current heaven is. But evidently, this heaven is prepared. It is being prepared, if we could say it that way. And when this earth is finally done away with, and renovated, and there is a new creation of a new heaven and a new earth. That new heaven, the city Jerusalem, the holy city that we're going to read about this morning, it will be in the proximity of a new earth. Now, what difference does any of this make? I mean, you've got bills to pay this week. You've got a doctor visit that you're worried about. You had a fight with your spouse this morning. You haven't spoken to one another since you walked into the church. You look all holy, but you're still angry, right? (laughs) What difference does any of this make? Often Christianity has been caricaturized as pie in the sky by and by. And therefore, the implication is irrelevant and not connected to this life. But If you've been tracking with us as we've worked our way through the book of Revelation, you know that the trustworthiness of God for what He will do has done in the past, what He will do now, and what He will do in the future, it is all one sense of integrity and truthfulness. Our faith is rooted not just on something in the past, but on what He is doing in the future, and therefore what He does now. Remember we talked about this, that our faith is tethered to what He did in the past and what He will do in the future, and this gives us a firm foundation for what feels like sometimes shifting sands right now. So the promises of the new heaven are just as important for us to understand and think about and believe as the evidences of what Jesus did in the past. 
with his coming to earth and dying for our sins and conquering death and resurrection. It is all one package. We don't get to pick and choose. We don't get to say, well, you know, it's great that Jesus lived centuries ago and he died and resurrected, but we can't really say anything about the future. God has said plenty about the future, and there is hope here. And when we understand what happened in the past, and when we believe and understand what will happen in the future, it gives us a firm footing to deal with the uncertainties that are going to happen in our lives this week. And whatever prom- what other promises could there be? Where will we go for that kind of help, for that kind of hope, for that kind of assurance? And so our text this morning begins in verse 9. And what we find here, important truths for us. We find revealed the glory of our eternal home in verses 9 through 11. So let's read that. Follow along. We'll pick it up in verse 9, and we'll consider what the Word tells us here. The glory of our eternal home. Verse 9, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and spoke to me, John says, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now stop right there. There's always... Through the book of Revelation, we know this by now, there's always a sense of judgment in the background. These are glorious promises, but even through the last couple of chapters, we're going to see reminders that, don't forget, God is a holy God. Don't forget, God is a God who judges. Don't forget, there is responsibility And God, in giving this final vision of what the glory of heaven looks like, He does it in such a way that the careful reader of Revelation can't escape the fact that the same angel that's revealing the glories of heaven also revealed the terrors of judgment. Once again, we don't get to pick and choose. You don't get to choose a God that just makes wonderful promises. You also should not only focus on a God who is angry with sin, because the God of the Bible is both. And you find that even in the background here, it's the same angel that was part of the revealing of the plagues. He also reveals the glory of our eternal home. And so you can compare that if you want to later in chapter 17, and you can see how similar it is. And what we find is that this is the revelation, it's the revealing of a bride, the wife of the Lamb. And the reason that's significant, there are many reasons, but The reason it's significant in the book of Revelation is because when you go back to this same language in chapter 17, you know what the angel reveals then? He reveals the harlot. He reveals, if you'll pardon the language, the whore of Babylon. And there's an intentional comparison, but not comparison so much as contrast here. The contrast is the systems of this world that exist and thrive upon resistance to the God of creation, they are represented by Babylon. From the very beginning, all the way through the Bible, throughout history, and into the end ages, Babylon is representative of the sinful heart of man that rises up and in community with one another says, we will not have God rule over us. And if this is all new to you, you can go read chapters 17 and 18 and see how it turns out for Babylon. Not well. Not well. But then, in contrast to Babylon, there is this revelation of a different city. That's what we're going to see. A different woman. Instead of the harlot, Babylon, you have the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And so look at verse 10. And he carried me, this angel, carried me away in the spirit. This is some kind of trance, evidently likely driven by the Holy Spirit. He carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. We already read about that in verses 1 and 2. The holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having, verse 11, having the glory of God. Now let me talk about two elements to this incredible glory of our eternal home. In the broadest sense. The first thing I want to show you this morning is our glorious identity. Our glorious identity. We are called the bride, the wife of the Lamb. We see this specifically in chapter 19 where we are the bride. All the redeemed are the bride of Christ. The bride is composed of the redeemed. And so catch what happens here. 
the angel says, I will show you a city. Or rather, he says, I will show you a bride. And he shows him a city. Well, which is it? Is the New Jerusalem a place or is it a people? And like so many questions about the Bible, you know the answer. The answer is yes. The New Jerusalem is a place, but it's also a people. And I'm not sure why we should be surprised at this. After all, we gave you the illustration just a moment ago, the contrast with Babylon. It's not that God was angry with the buildings of Babylon, right? It wasn't the infrastructure of Babylon that offended God, although sometimes it perhaps was an expression, especially back at Babel, it was an expression of their disobedience. The point is the city is the people. It's the organized system. And so in the same way that Babylon represents its people and the organized opposition to God, the New Jerusalem represents its people, the redeemed. This is our identity. We will be, as it were, the New Jerusalem, because the city is represented by its people, and the people represent the city, and there will be no disconnect there. People always ask me, you know, do you miss Texas? And you probably heard our answer, most of you. You know, we, we really miss Texans. We loved Texans. Nobody misses Houston, if you've ever been to Houston, especially in August, all right? But there won't be that kind of disconnect in the New Jerusalem, because the glory of the New Jerusalem will be unmitigated and untouched with anything negative, with any sin, with any disappointment, with any darkness, and the people who dwell there are the summary of that glorious representation of the eternal communion with God, and therefore the city is represented by the people. This is our identity, the eternal identity of the bride, you and me, Redeemed throughout all the ages, we will live in unmediated glory with Him and with other people. And remember the reason that the imagery of a bride is chosen is not only because of beauty, because in just a moment we're going to read about a lot of beauty in the eternal city. But another aspect of a bride that we often forget is her value. She is loved. She is treasured. Sometimes to our shame, those of us who are husbands, we fail to continue to love and treasure our wife the way we did on our wedding day. But the point of this is you and I, our identity as part of the redeemed is we are treasured by the God of heaven and we are loved by him eternally. This is our identity. And you've heard me preach it and teach it. So I won't belabor the point, but the identity begins now. It is who we are now based on what Jesus has done. But it will be our eternal identity. But there's not just this issue of our identity, but maybe to broaden it out just a little bit more, I need to talk to you this morning about our glorious existence. So revealed here is our glorious identity as the bride of Christ, the redeemed all through eternity, but also revealed as our glorious existence, what that looks like. After all, isn't that the question? What is heaven going to be like? And we have to acknowledge there are mysteries here. And not least because, fundamentally because, what God has done when He makes all things new in the future, when He takes this universe, at the very least this world, and he completely undoes it and then remakes it. It will be completely different, not the best term, it will be substantively different from anything we can understand today. There is an alteration in the cosmos. And so the cosmos, physical laws, the future in eternity, won't operate necessarily the way this world does. Not only because there will be no more curse, although that will be glorious, but because there will be other changes that we can't even get our minds around. Because this is an eternal kingdom, and God does something at the end of time, when eternity begins, when we enter this new city, this new Jerusalem, when we enter what we'll say eternally will be heaven, the entire existence of the earth at that time and the universe at that time is so altered that our language stumbles in trying to describe it, 
and our minds shut down in trying to understand it. But our glorious existence is significantly different from what we know now. Let me say it to you this way. It is an eternal existence with glorified materialistic features. We use the term materialistic in very negative ways, but I'm just talking about there's some kind of physicality that continues into eternity that is not the kind of physicality today where everything wears out, where everything goes bad. Everything from our own human bodies to the plumbing in the bathroom that's leaking this morning, and we're trying to figure out why is it leaking, that wears out. Everything, everything wears out. But heaven won't be that way. The new earth won't be that way. But it will still have some level, some sense of physicality, of, of what I would call glorified materialism. As our friend S. Lewis Johnson said, it is not some pale paradise peopled by pure spirits. I'm not sure he meant to alliterate it that way, but anyway, that's not what heaven is. Now, when we try to understand this, there are two errors. There are two, like there often are, there are two ditches that we need to stay out of. The first error, the first ditch, is the idea that what is spiritual, when we talk about something that is spiritual, we're talking about something that is not real. That when we use the term spiritual, when we talk about eternal truths, at the end of the day, we're talking about things that are not real. They don't exist in reality. And that is just raw naturalism. For those of us of a previous generation, remember Carl Sagan, who said the cosmos is all there was, is, and ever will be. That raw materialism, that raw naturalism, basically says that there's not anything spiritual. That if you don't want to talk about spiritual things, you can talk about them, but it's not, it has no real existence. That's an error. But there's another error that's the opposite ditch. And it's the error that all that really matters is spiritual. That that's the only thing that's really important is what is spiritual, and that anything that is material has no meaning, or even worse, has no value, or much worse, anything that is material is in and of itself evil. Now, philosophically, that's called dualism. It's the idea that everything we can touch, feel, everything we know physically has no eternal value at all. And sometimes as Christians, we can fall into the error of thinking or talking this way. But the reality is, what God reveals in Scripture is that Christianity is a religion that is rooted in the wholeness of men and women, which includes our bodies. And our bodies will continue into eternity with some level of physicality, and yet in a glorified sense, that won't have the limitations and the heartaches that we experience now. You say, well, all that's just speculation. How do you know that? Because that's what the body of the Lord Jesus was when he came out of the tomb. He sat and ate with his disciples, evidently. He invited them to touch him. He had some, some kind of, once again, our language fails us, doesn't it? He had some kind of glorified material existence that is part of his resurrected body. And remember what that's called in Scripture? It is called the first fruits. In other words, that's the first resurrection, and we will experience that same kind of resurrection. So our glorious existence has some kind of physical, glorified materialism to it. There is a materialistic nature to the new creation that is unquestionable. And from that, then, there come all kinds of speculations. And I'm not going to deal with these this morning. And speculations can sometimes be dangerous, but if you come back next week, you'll hear me talk about it. The speculations of what does it look like for there to be eternally, let me just put it this way, the best of what we enjoy here that will be recreated and refashioned and will last eternally. Here's the contrast to that. I was pretty much born in church. I was in one of those churches where we went to church Sunday morning and then came back Sunday night and then came to prayer meeting 
And then when I was at youth group, you know, I was there on Friday night for youth activities and Monday night for visitation. You, you know, that kind of church. If you've never heard of that, count yourself fortunate. But anyway, that's the way I was raised. And so I heard about heaven early on. And I distinctly remember my vision of what heaven was from when I was a very young child. It was a, in the clouds. It was a really, really, really long hallway that never ended. And so you know how you are when you're a kid. You try to think, what does it mean that something never ends? And so there's this, this hallway in the clouds, and lining the hallway, just single file, are a bunch of wooden Sunday school chairs. You know, the old kind that would flap down and make a lot of noise, you know, wooden Sunday school chairs. And, and this, was, this was literally, as a kid, this was my sense of heaven. And then underneath the Sunday school chairs, there was a paper hymn book. And all eternity, we would just sit in those chairs <laughs> and we'd use those paper hymn books because what was heaven about? Heaven was about giving God glory. And so we would just sing Sunday school songs all through eternity. Now, you understand that if that's your view of heaven, you might be able to be excused for saying, it doesn't seem that great to me. <laughs> well, there's a childishness to all of that. But there's also a failure to understand that evidently what God is doing, though we can't say with absolute certainty of what that will look like, it will have some evidences of the glory of this creation with all of its pain removed, with all of its decay removed, and the kind of fulfillment that, it, that sparks our own, the, the unique image of God within us, that eternally that same kind of joy that gives God glory in some way unencumbered by sin and by trouble and by inadequacies, somehow we will experience that kind of enjoyment and delight that reflects back to the glory of God, we will enjoy that forever. You say, well, I wish you'd explain it some more. That's about all I got. But that's what this text is saying. That there's this real existence that has some level of material existence, but it's not like anything we know, but it is like some things we know, evidently. We'll talk about that more next Sunday. So all of the commentators, as I've worked on the text this week, they all use the phrase, it is beyond imagination, over and over. This is beyond our imagination. And that's especially what happens beginning in verse 11, because language begins to fail. Because what we find here is we find three specific elements revealed about our eternal home and the glory of it. Our eternal home will consist, first of all, it will consist of a glory of unfathomable splendor. Unfathomable splendor. Beginning in verse 11. And what happens when we read these verses, if you've, any of you have read this text recently, you know that we tend to fixate on the, on the specifics, on the dimensions, and on the materials. And we'll talk about that. But listen, don't lose this truth. What John, by the Holy Spirit, was commissioned to communicate to us is that heaven will be splendorous and wondrous beyond our imagination. And that's where language begins to fail. So look at it with me. Let's walk through it. Verse 11. Having the glory of God. That says it right there, doesn't it? Its radiance, that is the radiance of the city, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. Why angels? Because it's God's city. The angels represent the fact that it belongs to God. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. 12 on the east, 3 on the east, on the north, three gates, and on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. Now, let me pause for just a minute. Right here, you have evidence in the eternal heaven of the valid promises that still 
were being fulfilled to Israel, the people of God, the Jews, the ethnic Jews. Let me show you what happens with this. This is a whole sermon in and of itself. I'll try to hurry. There's a spectrum of error when we start talking about the ethnic Jews, and they, in a sense, we would say after Jesus came and resurrected and the apostles began to preach to the Gentiles, in a sense, they were set aside because of their unbelief. But the Bible says that God will redeem them at the end. And throughout 2,000 years now, there are all kinds of error that creep in in the way we think about the ethnic Jews that will be redeemed. And let me give you that spectrum. Over on this side, there is an extreme sense of what's called Messianic Christianity. I don't know if you've ever known a Messianic Jew, but sometimes Messianic congregations can neglect the wonders of the New Testament and they try to reinstitute a Christianity that is Old Testament in nature as opposed to New Covenant in nature. So they still believe the gospel, but their practice of Christianity, you'd really say it's more Old Testament than it should be because it doesn't reflect the glories of the New Covenant. So that's an error of, in a sense, a positive respected value for ethnic Judaism. Then you also have, and this is a mistake also, you have the idea that because God loves the Jewish people and will one day have a program for them, we have to support and agree with everything the nation of Israel does today. That is also an unwise and unbiblical position. If the nation of Israel acts illegitimately, acts without justice, if the nation of Israel acts in ways that are immoral, they are to be condemned for that. We, we don't have to give a blanket, of, by the way, any more than we should our own country, give some kind of blanket approval because my country right or wrong. That's foolishness. Our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. And yet many times in the contemporary political scene, you'll have people who are Jesus followers, and they are Jesus followers, but they talk about national Israel as though current national Israel can do no wrong. I promise you, current national Israel can do wrong, just like America can. And as God's people, we need to think clearly about that. So some of you need to be clear that when we talk about God's plan for Israel, we're not necessarily saying that everything Israel does currently has to be embraced and approved of. Both of those positions are positions that attempt to honor God's program for the Jewish people. You move over to the negative side, and you have a lot of our brothers and sisters who embrace what is functionally called replacement theology. And here's their approach to the Bible. It's like all of the promises to Israel, Israel didn't fulfill their role, and so the promises are rolled over to the church, fulfilled in Jesus, and all of the curses still stuck with Israel. It's really an unfair, unfair position. It's like all of the curses are literal, they're, they're not spiritual, Israel has to receive all of the curses and the judgment, but all of the promises, many of them which appear to be unconditional, those are just rolled over into the church. So in a sense, Israel's out of luck. And so some of the, the people who believe replacement theology, they, I mean, they have to read Romans 9. It says in the end, all Israel will be saved. And some of them say, well, that just means all the church will be saved. It's a foolish interpretation there. But replacement theology is an error that is not a heretical error. It's not a soul-damning error, but we don't believe it's an accurate way to interpret Scripture. But now you need to drift over into the last position, which is not only heresy, but it is a, I think, a soul-damning heresy, and that is the sin of anti-Semitism. And anti-Semitism, by all accounts, is on the rise in our culture for all kinds of reasons in the political realm. But anti-Semitism has no place in the church of Jesus Christ. And a hatred of Jews because they're Jews, a stereotyping of Jews because of things you supposedly find in history, a denial of the tragedy of the Holocaust, those kinds of things have no place in the theology that is rooted in the religion of Jesus Christ who was born the, what, Messiah of Israel. And so anti-Semitism is a deep and dark sin. All we're saying is that when John sees the vision of he heaven, he sees it including the names of the 12 tribes, the 12 sons of Israel, the sons of Jacob, inscribed on the foundations. And that's a pretty glorious thing. Because you remember 
Just bear with me for one more moment. You remember in Hebrews 11 where it talks about what Abraham was really looking for? It says, Abraham was looking for a forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Now think about this. Abraham one day will see this city where the writer of Hebrews said he's looking for that city. He's waiting for it. He's waiting for that city that has foundations. And I think it's astonishing that the writer of Hebrews says he's looking for a city that has foundations. And John sees a vision that says, on those foundations are the names of Abraham's great-grandsons. I love that. And all that is meant to teach us, although I shouldn't say it that way, there's likely more there, but at the very least what this should teach us is that the one people of God into eternity is comprised of, at least to some part, the sons of Israel who are redeemed. That seems clear. Look at verse 14. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So there you have the gates, you have the names of Israel on the gates, you have the foundations, you have the names of the apostles. So here you have the unity, you have the church, the apostles, and then you have Israel, and you have together two peoples coming together as one people of God. So it's not like a weird old-time dispensationalism that you know, Israel is the people of God in the Old Testament and of the earth, and the church is the people of God in the New Testament and in heaven. And there's all kinds of strange things that original dispensationalists taught about that. There's one people of God. And they include the apostles. They also include the nation of Israel redeemed. Verse 15, and the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies foursquare, its length the same of its width. And he measured the city with his rod... 1,200 stadia, and its length and width, and here's the problem, right? Its height are equal. So how does that work? From the Santa Monica Pier to St. Louis, right around 1,500 miles. That's this length. So that's the length of one side of the, of the city. And then its other length is the same, but it's also that high. And you say, well, how does that work? Well, again, we're talking about a new world. At the very least, this communicates perfection. A cube was considered perfect in the ancient world. If you go read about the most holy place, we call it the Holy of Holies, it was designed as a cube in its dimensions. So likely there's a hint of that here, but all we can say is that this is a brand new world. And John senses our discomfort with this. How can a city be a cube? I have those questions. And so look at what he says. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits. Likely that's about 75 feet. Uh, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. You see what he does there? It's, it's an angel's measurement, but it's also human measurement. So don't just say, well, this is some kind of heavenly math that we don't understand. John says, no, don't do that. This is an astonishing city. It beggars our imagination. And then look at the components. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. We saw the same thing back in Revelation 4 in the original vision of God's glory there. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, and the tenth chrysoplase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. You say, well, what does all this mean? I'll tell you what it means. It means it's glorious. It means the appearance is astonishing. Chris and I have had the opportunity several times to visit in Russia, and we visited the palace, the winter palace and the summer palace of Catherine the Great and uh, Peter the Great in St. Petersburg. If you want to see something that's, uh, let me just put it, it's a tad overdone, all right? It's a tad overdone. And if you go read in Revelation 17 and 18, you see all of the baubles and all of the tawdry display of Babylon, all of its glory. 
And here God says, you think that's great? You think that's glorious? Where do you see your eternal home? Not to be compared. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city, maybe the square of the city, was pure gold like transparent glass. Now we read these descriptions. And we're, our minds immediately jump to the incredible wealth of the city. I mean, this is pretty astonishing. And yet, it may be that that's not quite the point. In a drab, somewhat monochrome existence that has happened throughout history, too many people have lived, you know, especially in the ancient Near East, they lived kind of monochrome kind of lives. This would be impressive to them. It would be stunning to them. But listen carefully. As one commentator says, this is not meant to give the impression of wealth or luxury, but it's to point to the glory and the holiness of God. That's what this beauty is about. The stunning variety, the different colors, the gold that's transparent. These jewels, they express an unspeakable beauty. The, the gold demonstrates absolute purity, so pure that it's, that it's transparent. Now, here's what I think is happening here. I think it's possible that God intends to turn upside down our fundamental sense of what's valuable. I mean, think about what we do with silver. We invest in it, put it in our safes. We take gold and we make, we make meaningful mementos out of gold. Some of us buy gold and invest in it and save it. You know what they do with gold in heaven? They pave the streets with it. Is it possible God is saying what we think is important when we reach that point will be meaningless? It's a glorious existence. Look at verse 22. He says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. You think about temples. Any notable city in the ancient world had a temple. The more dramatic and impressive, the better. Uh, a temple was a place where when you visited a city, you asked to see the temple because when you went to see the temple, you learned about their God. The temple was a place where you said, this is who our God is. This is what he is like. This is how we access our God. That's the purpose of a temple. Think of it this way. When God had a temple, when he had a dwelling place on earth, a physical dwelling place, God was basically saying, can't get into all of this this morning, but God was basically saying, this is not that. This is not that. It comes back to that holiness, that separateness. It's like if you want to know what your God is like, your God is one who dwells in this place where his holiness is represented. Now, all of this is inadequate because God dwells everywhere. He doesn't need a temple to hold him, remember? But nevertheless, he was pleased to use a temple, to use a tent, a tabernacle. And the New Testament says that then Jesus came and tabernacled among us. And what was Jesus' name? One of his names was Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. And then it says that the church is a temple. So all through the Word, from Eden, through altars, through a tabernacle, through the temple, through Jesus enfleshed, through the church, and even into the interim kingdom, there's this astonishing temple we read about in the book of Ezekiel. There's going to be a temple during the interim kingdom. But when you get to heaven, no temple. Because all of that in this present age, if I can say that, in the kingdom age, in all of that time, there is a sense still of, of barrier. There's a sense of separation. But in the new Jerusalem, in the refashioned new earth, in the eternal earth, there's no temple because it will be unending, total communion of the holy triune God with us, with people who are glorified and purified forever. Our eternal home will consist of unrestrained communion. Unrestrained communion. Not just unfathomable splendor, but unrestrained communion. 
Because our experience of God's infinite holiness will no longer be encumbered, or it will no longer be mediated. It'll be like heaven, but Eden, excuse me, but infinitely better. And it will never be at risk. It will never, think about this, it will never be at risk. In Eden, the fellowship with God was, in a sense, it was at risk because of the potentiality of disobedience. And when we get to heaven, that's no longer there. And we will experience communion with God forever. And so you had it with Adam and Eve. Remember with Enoch, he walked with God and he was not. You had it with Abraham and Moses who were called the friends of God. You had it with the Shekinah temple, uh, Shekinah glory in the tabernacle and the temple. Jesus came and he was God with us. The Holy Spirit indwells us and he indwells his church. He uses the glories of the church to be the dwelling place of God so that the world, if they want to know who God is, what can they do? They come to the church, not the building. They come to the church because we are the temple. So they ask the question, what is your God like? And as the church, we're to show them. But once we get to the new heaven, there's there's no more barrier. There's no more inadequacy. And eternally, we will commune with the holy God of heaven and with others in his presence. And what astonishing, what an astonishing promise that is. Some people think, the greatest hymn writer, at least in the last 300 years, was a, a blind woman named Fanny Crosby. Lost her sight because of scarlet fever when she was a baby. My favorite hymn that she wrote has these words, a blind woman, remember. She said, when my life work is ended and I cross the swelling tide, when the bright and glorious morning I shall see, I shall know my Redeemer when I reach the other side, and his smile will be the first to welcome me. And then she says, I shall know him, I shall know him, and redeemed by his side I shall stand. I shall know him, I shall know him by the print of the nails in his hands. Communion unrestrained, unmediated, unfettered, forever. Real quickly, our eternal home will consist of a glory of unfathomable splendor and unrestrained communion. Also, it will consist of a glory of unobstructed light in verse 23. Do you see it there? And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And again, how can we fathom this, this new cosmos? I note that it doesn't say there will be no more sun or moon, but it just says there's no need for the sun or moon. There are evidences in the Old Testament, indeed, the sun and moon may pass away. But the point of this is there's no more night. Night is where loneliness reigns, isn't it? Some of you know that by experience. Night is where fears rule. Night is where sin thrives. The Bible says people love darkness because their works are evil, John 3. But when we get there, no more night. Nothing but light because God is the light and the Lamb is the lamp of that place. Unobstructed light. Now the Lamb is mentioned seven times. I'm through, by the way. I'm I'm looking at the clock if you're not, but I'm through. The Lamb is mentioned here seven times in this text. This is Jesus' primary identity into eternity. And here's the reason why. Catch this. The reason this is Jesus' primary identity into eternity is because that's his glory. The slain lamb who offered himself for sinners, 
That's his glory. The lamb that was slain. This is how a holy God calls rebels like us righteous. If there's not some means to do that, God is not really holy. But his son is the lamb who sacrificed, who substituted himself for us. He did it gladly, willingly, in one will with God the Father. Not in competing, but God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. The one God offering Jesus as the Lamb who is slain and into glory, as Fanny Crosby believed. The prince of his nails will be there demonstrating his love for us, for rebels like us. A more recent song says it this way. What wisdom once devised a plan where all our sin and pride was placed upon the perfect lamb who suffered, bled, and died. The wisdom of a sovereign God whose greatness will be shown when those who crucified your son rejoice around your throne. Your takeaway today, the lamb is all you need. There's no need for the sun. There's no need for the moon. There's no need for anything else. Into glory, into eternity, and today, the lamb is all you need. Let's pray. Father, all these things humble our imagination, leave us stumbling for words, grasping for understanding. And yet these promises are glorious. And because we know what you have done in Jesus through the cross and the empty tomb, and we read and believe what you will do for us into the new heaven and new earth, we are firmly grounded today no matter what comes. Remind us when we flounder. Remind us when we struggle. Remind us when we doubt. Remind us when we fear that all we really need is Jesus, the Lamb. Do this work in our hearts. Strengthen our faith. And make us a faithful representation, a temple the body of Christ, even at this place, this body of Christ, Calvary Baptist of Santa Barbara, help us be a temple that rightly represents to those who want to see the wonder of who our God is. Answer this prayer for your eternal glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.